HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardin.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're looking at things that have changed and things that are still in flux. From mothers balancing new lifestyles to the social stigma surrounding pumpkin spice. You got rid of the star rating system and talked about, like, I'm not going to use the word ethnic when I talk about food. They recognized that safety was our motivation, and, and they were very you know, receptive to the changes, understanding what we were trying to accomplish. A cupcake or a piece of bacon or a glass of rosé is not inherently gendered. Tune in to Meet and 3 HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Jupiter's Almanac. I'm Matthew Rayford, the great-great-great-grandson of Jupiter Gilliard, a former slave who bought the land I now farm in Georgia nearly 150 years ago. Through the years, my ancestors have passed down some essential and hard-earned wisdom about growing and producing the food we eat. In this podcast, I'll share that inheritance with you. So if you're just starting out, reconnecting with the land, or seasoned farmer or cook join our conversation with thanksgiving just around the corner cat johnson and i one of my producers uh started talking about some of our favorite dishes that we have and as we got to talking about it i happened to say i love oyster dressing and so i believe that oyster dressing is like the consummate side dish for an amazing fried turkey. Getting to the second half of the show, I will be talking directly about oyster dressing, but a great oyster dressing starts out with great oysters. So to learn more about the oysters that are being cultivated in coastal Georgia, Jupiter's Almanac's producer, Kat Johnson, who I just mentioned, called up Thomas Bliss, who works with the University of Georgia Marine Extension here in Brunswick. They talk about UGA's mission, the history and science of oyster cultivation in the area, and some tips for sourcing the best oyster possible. Here's their conversation. My name is Thomas Bliss, and I'm the director of the Shellfish Research Laboratory for the University of Georgia Marine Extension and Georgia Sea Grant. And the big focus of our lab is to 
conduct research to help develop shellfish aquaculture within the state of Georgia. And our lab got its start back in the 1980s with a lot of work and effort going into getting clam aquaculture established and running up in the state. And since sometime in the early to mid 2000s, we've been heavily focused on helping our state develop the oyster aquaculture to diversify our industry. So Georgia doesn't have, you know, a huge coastline compared to some other states, but can you talk about sort of the significance of the coastal region to the state as a whole, since, you know, UGA is mainly based in Athens, which is pretty far inland. So talk a bit about how, you know, the, the extension service got focused on the, on the coastal region and the significance of that area to the state. Well, the coastline of Georgia, you're right, is a short coastline um, going, you know, literally from between South Carolina and Florida. But we are very blessed to have a very deep coastline um, in the fact that we have a very large estuarine system and we have a majority of the salt marsh, intact salt marsh still on the East Coast. So we are very blessed to have this coastline. So although it's short, we have a lot of coastal area um, when you look at our tidal rivers and tidal creeks. And the University of Georgia saw value in the coast of Georgia back in the 1960s and 70s. In, in the 1970s, they were able to establish the Marine Extension Service to help advise coastal communities and other people, residents along the coast on coastal issues and model it after the same method that um, UGA had done with the land grant side of things as far as, you know, being extension into all the counties. So University of Georgia took a initiative back in the 70s to establish the Marine Extension Service. And there soon after the University of Georgia also became a Sea Grant College as well. So um, We've had a long time here on the coast, and I think we're actually within our 50 years of being on the coast um, now in Georgia, which is just a wonderful thing. So tell me a bit about the kind of history of cultivating oysters, oyster farming in, in Georgia. So historically, oysters here have always just been wild harvest. Um, that has been the dominant form of growing of collecting oysters here in Georgia for oh centuries. And that wild harvest continues to this day. And believe it or not, in the early 1900s, Georgia was one of the largest, if not the largest, oyster producing state um, by volume of oysters being harvested from our, um, from our waters. And that was 100% wild harvest. And that was um, pretty much for a shucked meat market. And we had a whole series of canneries that were established along the coast that, you know, they were common in parts from northern Florida all the way up through South Carolina, where we have our intertidal oysters are very common. The, that industry did very well through the 1940s, and then it started to peter out after that. And by the 1960s, and that drive to eat a canned oyster, you know, wasn't there as much anymore. So the industry kind of died out in that way. But since then, the state has 
been able to regulate it and they now will give out what we call a um, bottom lease, which is an intertidal area where you can legally, um, that individual can harvest oysters wildly for um, a bulk product. And that has been going on since the 70s and is still the traditional way in which oysters are harvested within the state. To me, one of the most interesting things about oysters is the fact that they're cleaning the water and that we don't really have to be as consumers as people who eat oysters. We don't have to be concerned about that necessarily. Can you talk a bit about like the role that oysters play in keeping our oceans healthy? Yeah, I mean, oysters are wonderful filter feeders and they are probably like a lot of bivalves, some of the most efficient filterers that we have. And they are able to, you know, process, oh, upwards of 50 gallons a day through one adult oyster. So they're constantly moving that water. And one of the one of the wonderful things that oysters do is that by taking in that food, they have two tracks. They can either consume that food directly um, if it's what they need, but also if there's particulate matter that is not food, they still take that in, but they actually put that through a different um track so that they don't digest it and they um, kick that out as pseudo feces. So not only are they eating on the phytoplankton, but some of the detritus and other stuff in the water that is in suspended in there, the oysters capture and they kick out and they return that nutrients down to the sediment. So they're actually being that link between taking stuff out of the water and, you know, depositing it down into the sediments on the bottom so that those nutrients and other stuff that were in the water then become available to the community, the benthic community that lives, um, you know, down on the bottom. So in many areas, you actually see um, a net benefit, you know, associated with the benthic community around oyster reefs than if you're in an area where you don't have a lot of um, oysters or other shellfish. What are What's your advice for like, finding and sourcing the best quality oysters and the most delicious oysters that you can? Uh, I, you know, that's a good question. And it's something I think a lot of us really um, tr struggle with at times on how to find it. Um, you know, the best place to start is some of your local seafood markets, um, looking up and contacting them to see who has it. And also, you know, you can start looking and seeing, um, what restaurants and stuff like that also carry some of the local seafood and look and see if that's available. I know here in Savannah, there are a couple restaurants that routinely, we have one individual that's producing some um, oysters and they routinely try to get his oysters on the menu because they want that local connection. But I would say, you know, definitely starting with, um, you know, local seafood markets. Another thing is if you have an extension agent in your um county or if you know at least within georgia the marine extension you know our office in savannah or our office down in brunswick those are areas you can contact to see where you can learn about more where to you know get seafood from and then also i'll say with the internet um you know doing searches and starting to find things you it's amazing what you can now uh find that way and uh 
Lastly, Oyster South has done a great job. The farmers that they work with, a lot of times they'll have a link or contact information for those farmers. So that's another way that you can find out what's in the region or in your area. Thanks to Thomas Bliss and our producer, Kat, for diving into the world of oysters in Georgia. We'll be right back to talk about how to make an oyster dressing this Thanksgiving after the break. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome back to Jupiter's Almanac. Okay, so maybe oyster dressing is a staple of your Thanksgiving table, or maybe you want to try it for the first time this year. Now we're going to talk about how to make it. So here are three tips I will start off with. First of all, I would not suggest necessarily using just some regular canned oysters. I would prefer, if you could, to either get some fresh oysters, practice your shucking skills, and saving some of the liquid, or going and finding yourself some fresh oysters that are already set up. Like here, for me, I go to City Market um, right here and just go ahead and grab me a whole big old thing of some of them fresh oysters that have just been shucked with all of that oyster liqueur in it. Oh, my God. I can just I can taste the saltiness right now. Um, it's, It's just an amazing thing. I would, however, say if you're going to use cornbread as part of your dressing mix, do not make cornbread cake with sugar in it for sure. Make sure that you're just making a basic cornbread. Even if it's a hot water cornbread, just make sure you don't have any sugar in it. Um, Here's another awesome tip also. I myself also like a little bit of uh, bacon bits in mine. Um, And you want to really like cook that bacon down till it's super, super crispy and then chop it all up. Then use a little bit of that bacon grease to saute those onions off and some of the fresh garlic and all of that stuff as you're starting to make it. Uh, your celery, a little bit of cayenne pepper or crushed red pepper. It's kind of like a seafood. If you think about like a seafood uh, extravaganza inside of a dressing, that is what this ultimately comes out to be. So at right after you get finished heating up uh, and cooking off the, that bacon and getting it nice and crisp, you push that to the side, add um, your onions to it, saute it off a little bit, And then while you're doing that, what you want to do is combine your cornbread and breadcrumbs into a big old bowl and then uh, add all of that sauteed onion. Um, You're going to add a little bit of salt and pepper uh, and a nice little bit. And I like this. um, I like a little bit of Italian flat parsley in there. Then I toss in a little bit of beaten egg, get it nice and juicy, add that oyster liqueur to it. All of that is going to give it some yumminess. Now, at this point is when you should taste. Get yourself a little bit of it. Taste it. You haven't put the oysters in just yet. You want to get yourself a nice little taste. See if it has that 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 
taste of the sea, like the kiss of the sea should kind of be on your lips um, as you uh, start to taste this a little bit. Then you add your oysters, toss it over into a 400 degree oven for about 30 to 45 minutes. Let it cook until it's nice and golden brown and serve with that fried turkey. O-M-G, you are talking about lip smacking good right about now. Well, that's the show. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Jupiter's Almanac wherever you get your podcast. Special thanks to Thomas Bliss. Our executive producer is Kat Johnson. Jupiter's Almanac is also produced by Dylan Boyer. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by the Joy Drops. Oh my God, I love that banjo in there. Jupiter's Almanac is powered by Simplecast. Jupiter's Almanac is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And we want to hear from you. Send us questions, any questions in writing or as voice memos that we can help answer on the air at Jupiter's Almanac at heritageradionetwork.org. 